right, good morning, church. Good to see you. My name is Justin, one of the pastor elders here at Peninsula Grace, and it's glad to, glad to be worshiping our God with you this morning. Um, on the surface, uh, my father and I uh, don't necessarily seem a lot alike. Um, he is uh, quiet, he's slow to speak, and I, well, I take after my mother. Um, <laughs> You can see the one who's talking in the, in the picture here. Uh, but on a deeper level, we are actually a lot alike. You cannot escape um, from influencing your children. That's why I, I love Nintendo. Um, but more than just our Italian noses, uh, those beautiful, proud Italian noses, we have a lot in common. We are both very stubborn. We are both hot-tempered. Uh, we both love talking with our hands. Uh, neither one of us can stay awake through an entire movie. Uh, I get that from my, my father. They say that an apple uh, doesn't fall far from the tree. They, they say that more is caught than taught, and I've definitely seen that to be true in my life. I've caught some of my bad, dad's bad habits, uh, but Lord willing, I've also caught some of his good habits, and, and I can say that I hope to become half the man my dad is. But all of us, no matter which road we've walked, I don't know what your father's situation's like, but listen, everybody's father is ultimately fallen, uh, sinful, and in not, and, and they are fallible. And, we, and we've said in this series that we're not an island, that the decisions we make affect other people and no more than our own children. When I was nine months old, my dad moved me from a seminary in Indiana to Soldotna, Alaska to become the youth pastor here at Peninsula Grace. And you know what? He didn't ask me my opinion for a second. He just took me up with him, right? And I'm fine with that. Like, I just, there's no bitterness whatsoever. No. But we, listen, what my, my dad's decision drastically affected my life. Where I live, the, the kind of family we would be raised in, the community that I'd be a part of. And I look today, here I am in Alaska, a pastor just like my dad. And I don't think that's just a coincidence. We both share a lot in common, namely our preference for A&W root beer, the best root beer on the planet, right? Anybody who's a fan of Barks, the exits are there and there. Now, um, got to know your non-negotiables. We're going to see this morning in, in this story how David's choices affect not just him, but his children. Uh, for better and mostly this morning for worse. We're going to see King David become Father David, and it's not pretty. Now, you remember back in 2 Samuel 7, as we've been walking through this series on these first three kings of Israel, God made this promise to David. He said, from your throne will come a king who will rule and reign forever, a righteous king. And so we're looking forward to that, that promise. And, and this God, our ultimate father, the only good, truly good father, never breaks a promise. But as a good father, he's also faithful to discipline. And we saw in 2 Samuel 12 the consequences that came from him taking Bathsheba and murdering her husband Uriah. He said to David through Nathan, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And this morning, we're going to see God be faithful to these consequences through David's children. 
Now remember in the story, Nathan, David said that four sheep would be the payment for one sheep, and that's exactly what happens in this story. The payment for the one sheep, Bathsheba, that he took will be paid fourfold in his sons. We already saw last week that David and Bathsheba's child died, and this morning we're going to see two more of those children die because of these consequences. We're actually going to see heightened versions of David's sexual sin and murder as we see one of his own sons rape one of his his daughters, and then one of his other sons murder that first son. Now, I saw this passage this week, and I'm like, Lord, give us a break, right? We've walked through David and Bathsheba. We've lost, walked through the loss of their child, and, and now we get here. I do promise next week will be a little bit cheerier, right? It'll, it'll come. But sadly, today's topic's not an easy one. But we can't just gloss over the tough stuff because God's word is not silent on these issues. And listen, we can't be silent on these issues either. And in a room this size, there are too many people who have been affected by abuse one way or another. But we need to start with a word of prayer. Father, we know this ten- touches a tender spot for many here today. I ask that you'd give me wisdom and courage as we walk through this text to be sensitive that, we, that you would tenderly comfort those who need to be tenderly comforted, that you would change our community through the true son of David, Jesus, that you would teach us to love each other the way that you, our good father, loves us. We thank you that you are the king of kings, still are and always will be on the throne. We need you this morning, oh God, in your son's name we pray. We're going to see four more takings this morning. We've said that the sinful king is one who takes as opposed to the God who gives. The first taking is Amnar taking Tamar. It says in verse 1 of 2 Samuel 13, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. So let's do a little family tree here so we can straighten this out. Amnon is the firstborn uh, from David's wife, Ahinoam. And then Absalom is the thirdborn from Makkah, as is Tamar. So Tamar is Absalom's full sister and Amnon's half-sister. Spoiler alert, polygamy, bad idea. Okay, don't, don't do it. If any of you guys were thinking about it, don't do it. And verse 2, Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. Now, you first say, well, now, this love, this love for um, Am, the, excuse me, Tamar that Amnon has, a lot of names to juggle here this morning, Is this true love? Is this selfless love? Well, we know this is his sister. It's against the law. And and look at what the last line here says. It seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. To her. This is is not agape love. This is carnal desire of forbidden fruit. This is selfish lust that we see from Amnon's heart. And so the next verse says, Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shimea, David's brother. So this is actually, Jonadab is actually Amnon's cousin. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. The word means shrewd or wise. Where else do we see that in the story of the Bible? A shrewd, wise, crafty tempter coming onto the scene. This is the serpent on the third page of our Bibles. And once again, there's a temptation He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Now notice Jonadab's specific words. Doesn't call him Amnon. It says, O son of the king. O O son of the king. What's the the king is in a position of power to take what he wants, just like we saw with David and Bathsheba. Don't forget who you are, Amnon. 
And he says, he said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So here's the test. Remember, David faced a test on the rooftop. Amnon's facing a a test here again in the palace. And just like his father David, he's going to listen to the lies and follow his selfish desire instead of God's wisdom. And he too becomes a taker from the line of David. Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat it from her hand. So here's where David gets involved in the story. Verse 7, David sent home to Tamar saying, go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. Now the text doesn't tell us how much David is aware of Amnon's plot. So we can't pin something on David here that the text doesn't pin on him. But what we do see in this story is David being an extremely passive, indulgent father. And this comes out more explicit as we read. In fact, in Kings, Adoniah, the fourth king, that fourth son that will die from David because of his consequences, look at what it says. Now his father, King David, had never disciplined him at any time, even by asking, why are you doing that? Parents in the house, are there appropriate times to ask your child, why are you doing that? Yeah, amen. Preach. David is, he doesn't discipline his children. And we see the fruition of that in these stories. In verse 11, when she brought them near to him, these cakes, he took, here's more taking, he took hold of her and said to her, come lie with me, my sister. And just like David, his father, he takes what is not meant for him to take. Verse 12, she answered him, no, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, she asks, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. I think she's probably just trying to bide time there. But in verse 14, it says, he would not listen to her. Being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And the New Living and NIV use much more specific language that he raped her. Amnon was stronger than her physically, but he was also stronger than her legally. He was stronger than her socially. I mean, here's the son, the son of the king, and just like David, abuses his position of power. And then what comes to this, verse 15, Amnon hated her with very great hatred so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said, get up and go. Expose what's in his real heart. Again, this wasn't love. This was just lust. And so this plays out as he kicks her out of the house and and then she says to him in verse 16, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he wouldn't listen to her. Now, why would she want to stay? He's saying, get out. She says, no, that's even worse. Wouldn't she want to leave? In a patriarchal society where women had virtually no power, 
the law makes an accommodation for such a situation. And back in Deuteronomy 22, it says this, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed and seizes her and lies with her, this is forcible, just like we saw in this story, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman 50 shekels of silver and shall be his wife because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So what we see here is Tamar being seen as damaged goods would have been outcast and shamed from society. So the law said you take her in to provide for her and to protect her for all her days. Especially, especially now, he has not just taken her purity, he has essentially taken her life. In verse 17, he said, He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence. Now, Jen Wilkin points out here, this word in the Hebrew, woman, does not even exist there. He says, put this, this, put this thing, put this out of my presence. Essentially, take out the garbage. Treats her like an object, just like David had treated Bathsheba as an object. And then he says, bolt the door after her. Why would he do that? Well, it makes it look like she's the one that was trying to initiate contact, right? If the door is locked, he's trying to cover his tracks. Who does that remind you of? The apple does not fall far from the tree, does it? In verse 19, Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. She laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And just like Bathsheba, we see a mourning, desolate woman. Brother Amnar comes onto the scene, verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now this is interesting. He sees her disconsolate. And, and what does he do? Hey, was, Absal- was Amnon with you? Now why would he ask that question? Again, we don't know, and we can't read into this, to, through the passage what's not there. But man, it sure seems like that was his assumption. This must have been something with Amnon. I don't think that this thing was a secret of Amnon's heart. It said he was so in love with her that he was ill. I think this was known in a small little palace in a small little town. What did David know? We are not told. Now imagine, if you're Tamar, hearing from your brother these following words. Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. Now, he might be saying this because as we're going to see, he wants to take revenge. He says, don't worry, I'm going to take this into my own hands. But she has just been assaulted by her half-brother, and now her full brother says to her, chill out. This is family. Don't take this so hard. Now, this reaction is far too often what we see today, right? Shh. And this is why we don't talk about this in the church. We don't want to rock the boat, right? We don't want to make people uncomfortable. You're supposed to come to church and it's supposed to be a happy place. But listen, ignorance is never the answer to sin and brokenness that is prevalent in our communities. Where does this leave Tamar? Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house, an intensification of David's sin, because at least David took Bathsheba into his home to provide for her, as the law said. Amnon leaves her out to dry. But now we see David's reaction here, verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry, period. Can you imagine for a moment your son coming to you, saying that one of your other sons had done this to one of your daughters? How would you react? Of course she would be angry, but would it stop there? Would there be no follow-up action? I hope not. 
David here fails as a father to do something. And probably a long series of failures that got to this point. He not only fails as a father, though, he fails as a king. According to law, if something like this was to be done, there was a rule for that. Leviticus chapter 18, do not have sexual relations with your sister or half-sister. You hear the specificity. Whether she's your father's, is your father's daughter or your mother's daughter. Whether she was born into your household or someone else's. It forbids it, says this is not God's heart. And then here is the consequence. In, verse, in chapter 20, it says that they are to be publicly cut off from the community. So what should David have done? He should have excommunicated his son who had violated Tamar. But he does nothing. In James chapter 4, says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Very often, inaction is sin action. Now, what's, why is David hesitating here? Well, it's possible. What does he see when he sees his son? He sees himself, doesn't he? And when, when he looks at what Absalom's doing, he goes, if I condemn my son, I'm really condemning myself. I'm living in a glass house. And so he commits the sin of doing nothing. What we'll see from his son Absalom is he commits the sin of doing something, but it is the wrong thing, taking vengeance into his own hands as a vigilante. And the second point is that Absalom takes Amnon. Absalom takes Amnon. Now look at what happens here. It says, but Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Absalom, for the next two years, will plot the death of his brother now remember the line of the throne here. The firstborn's Amnon. He's the heir to the throne. Absalom is the thirdborn. Now again, we, we can't presume motives here, but do you think this is simply vengeance for his sister? Or does he also have his eyes on the throne? We will see very clearly in this story going forward where Absalom's heart is and what his prerogative is. So he tries to throw a party to get Amnon drunk to be able to kill him. Look at verse 28. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark when Absalom's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. And just like shades of David, right? What did he do? He got Uriah drunk as he's in the process of covering up his tracks. And we see this same thing happening here. And he comes to his father. He says, why don't you send your sons to this party? David at first refuses, but when Absalom presses, look what happens. Verse 27, Absalom pressed David until he let Amnon and all his sons go with him. Once again, David's passivity and indulgence, a pushover, as his family continues to descend into chaos. Absalom, is mur Absalom murders Amnon, and then it says in verse 38, Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. He hides out for the next three years. And then it says in verse up in 37, David mourned for his son day after day for Absalom. Verse 39, the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom. Why? Because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. So he found comfort from Amnon. He mourns Absalom, who's gone now. But who's mourning for Tamar in this text? And David, in this passage, he refuses to act, to discipline, to stop his sons, or to protect his daughter. He's a passive, indulgent father 
And parents, our call here is to not just stand by. Now, ultimately, our children are not in our control, right? They're in the hands of the king of kings, but we are called to very actively model and discipline to communicate with our children, to be present, to do the job God gave us to do. And what we, also, what we need to take away from this text is we are called to action, not just anger. In a room this size, there are those who have been abused, those who's, who have abused, those who are, all, all of us are familiar with someone who's walked this path. And the call here is not just to be angry like David, but to take action now, our culture has seen some complicated uh, aspects of the Me Too movement, and we could get into some of those conversations. But for this morning, what we see is that if this has been done to you, you cannot stay silent. If you have done this, you cannot stay silent. There must be repentance, confession, a change. And if you know someone who has gone through this, there's a courageous step to be taken, to know that you're present with them and that there are options. Listen, if you are one of those who have been abused, Our God sees you, your heavenly Father sees you as a beautiful daughter or son. And he wants to tell you there's a path forward. You do not have to stay in this. Tamar was left desolate and alone. You don't have to stay there. And so there's a couple things we put in the sermon notes this morning. If this is you, what, where do I go? How, what, what steps do I take forward? One of them is the Lee Shore Center right here in town for those, uh, especially women and children, those who have been victims of domestic violence or abuse. We have the ABC Life Choices, which now is partnering with Priceless, working with those coming out of sex trafficking. Also, Young Lives, who comes alongside teen moms, if that's the demographic that you or someone you love has found themselves in. A New Hope Counseling Center, Christian Counseling Center, just down the road from here. They can help give you tools and how to process and find a path forward of freedom in Jesus. And finally, Love, Inc. Some of us might say, if I take this step, I'm going to be out on my own, single mom, or what am I going to do? And Love, Inc. provides resources to know how to get onto our feet. I want to tell you this morning, there are options for you. There is hope, there is redemption, and his name is Jesus. So Amnon takes, Absalom takes, and now we're going to see Absalom trying to take the throne away from his own father. Chapters 14 through 18 shift the spotlight onto Absalom betraying his own dad. Now, check out the way that this verse uh, describes Absalom, verse 25 of chapter 14. In all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. Dude was a hunk. Now, what do we know from this pa- these passages we've been reading in our story? If the outward is impressive without blemish, often the inside is very, very full of blemishes, and we'll be aware of that in this story too. Verse 26 talks about his luscious locks. When he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year he used to cut it. This is a tradition in his life. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. Now, if those of you are not familiar with uh, the Jewish weight system, that's five pounds. Every year, he had five pounds of hair that he'd cut off and just stare at. Just put it in a trophy case. He'd be like, yeah, buddy. And so when you think Absalom, think Jewish Fabio, basically, is what we're trying to say. And in fact, I, I looked this up online, Google image Jewish Fabio, and look at this. Here's Fabio <laughs> with a yarmulke. 
Google image is awesome, right? Now, some of you millennials are like, who's Fabio? Okay, so think, maybe don't think Fabio, think Jewish Aquaman, if that helps you, right? That, but tr- that translates it for you today better. Um, so so here, here's what happens. Um, we got this guy with his hair. I, I remember, actually, when uh, Jill and I had first met, uh, after the, our first meeting together, um, I said, anything you noticed, anything stood out to you? Um, and she goes, you know, I wonder w- what you would look like with hair. I had shaved my head for most of my life, and ladies and gentlemen, compromise. All right, here we go. Here we go. So here's Jewish Fabio hatching a plan to steal the throne away from his own father, right? And so he steals the heart of the people, and over the passage, he wins the people of Israel over to himself. Once again, just like Saul, he becomes the king of the people's choice, not the God's choice, who is still David. And so as the people turn in their allegiance toward Absalom, David finds himself in familiar territory, on the run, fleeing Jerusalem. And he's on his way out the door, and he says this to the men he leaves behind. He says, the king went out and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Now, if this brings you back to a hyperlink from a few chapters ago, we'll see how this plays out. Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, what should we do? How do I take over here? Now, Ahithophel, other than just another hard name to pronounce in this story, is Bathsheba's grandfather. So think about that for a second. Here's Ahithophel's advice. Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So Ahithophel says, I want you to go in and take your father's concubines. Kind of mark your territory action here. This is also a political statement of taking the throne, and he's publicly shaming David here. But don't you think there might be a little revenge factor hidden in this for Ahithophel, Bathsheba's grandfather, and what David had done to her, to, to her is not lost on him. And so this is exactly what Absalom does. Verse 22, they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Another disgusting scene unfolding in the aftermath of David's sin. But do you remember the words that Nathan said to David? We said the consequences that were going to be given to him. Part of the words, listen in verse 11, Behold, I'll raise up evil against you out of your own house, your own line, your own sons, and I'll take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with their wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. And we see that coming to fruition right here. And where is Absalom when he does this? On the roof of the palace. This is the very place where David had looked and seen Bathsheba and the whole mess started. We've come full circle. And again, women are being objectified here. And that is not our God's heart. But God is allowing the consequence of sin to be fulfilled Sin is horrible, it is destructive, it kills, and it knows no death. But our hope today is to remember that the same God who carries out faithfully these consequences is the same God who said, there's a king coming who's going to make these wrongs right. We anchor ourselves on the faithfulness of our loving God. 
And we see that in this fourth taking. It's God's turn to take. God always has the final word. He's still the king of the kings, still on the throne, and he's going to take Absalom's life for this heinous betrayal of his father. He uses some foolish counsel given to Absalom to pick a fight with David. So here we have a war going on with David and his own son, Absalom, and this is where God's going to take him out. In chapter 18, verse 9, you may be familiar with this story. Absalom happened to be meet the servants of David. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth while the mule that was under him went on. So here's Absalom caught in the tree by his head, his hair. What was his pride? His hair. His own vanity became his downfall here. And what we see is, is I also believe, and I, I, I might be reading into this a little bit, but I think this is preaching against man buns. I'm not sure. I said that in the first service, and I realized Ryder was up here with, and I was like, oh, whoops, that's awkward. <laughs> Don't worry, Ryder, I'm on my way, buddy. I'm on my way. And then these, Joab took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And ten young men... Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom and struck him and killed him. So Absalom, with a, with a spear stuck into his side, is killed. And so they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. Now, why the detail here? Why mention his burial with the stones? Well, at the time, culturally, uh, this was the burial of a traitor. If you betrayed the throne, which is what he just did, this is the burial you would get underneath a pile of stones. So to recap his death, we have a son of David who's hanging on a tree, being pierced in his side, and is put in a stone tomb for the sins of a common traitor. In this case... He was a traitor. He's betraying his own father. But ultimately, he's dying here because of David's sins. And David watches another son perish because of his own sinful actions. But this also points us forward, doesn't it? To the true son of David, who was also hung on a tree, who was also pierced in his side, who was also buried in a stone tomb, treated like a common traitor. But unlike Absalom, no stone could hold him. Amen? And Jesus hung on that cross, accused of betrayal. But this was not betraying his father. This was actually in obedience to his father. And, and David, as he hung on this cross, it was not for his, or Jesus hung on the cross, it was not for his own doing, but also for the sins of David, just like Absalom for the sins of Absalom, and for the sins of Amnon, and for the sins of Justin, and for your sins as well. And the story ends with David deeply moved. He says, he went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Five times he wails, my son Remembering this is his third of fourth sons to die because of his consequences. I deserved that death. This was his personal loss of a child, but it was also the personal responsibility he had for that loss. He says, I should have died in front instead of you. But remember, David's life was spared in his repentance. He says, I should have been in that tree. That's where he says, would I have died instead of you? Sinful David could not save his own son. He should have died, but he was spared. But the true son of David 
without any blemish, without any sin, did die, though he should not have, and was not spared by his Father, but in order to save each of us in this room today. So what we see in chapters 13 through 18, we see a father's sins amplified through the next generation. Whereas he took Bathsheba and he murdered Uriah, now we see one of his sons violating one of his own sisters, then to be murdered by his own brother, and then that brother tries to take out his own father. The apple does not fall far from the tree. They caught what David taught and bore the brunt of his consequence. It's two things and we'll be done. First of all, there are always consequences for our actions. We've been talking about that in this series, and today we're applying it to parenting. How we parent matters. How we disciple, if you're not a parent, matters. We are discipling someone. It's just a question of what does that look like. So let me ask you, are you passive or proactive in your parenting? Are you indulgent or diligent to discipline? What, what does your parenting look like? And, and not just what do we tell our kids, but, but how do we live in front of them? That's what really matters, right? Not just, hey, you should follow Jesus. Am I following Jesus? Because you can't lead someone farther than you are yourself. And I'm not here just to beat up on parents, right? Here's the, the reality, the, the bad news is that we'll never be a perfect parent. And there will be consequences. There will be ramifications for that. But the good news is, the good news is that even when we are faithless as parents, he is faithful to his promises. And it's because of the grace of God won through the risen Jesus that any of us have any shot at being the kind of parent that he's called us to be. God faithfully carries out chapter 12's consequences, but he also faithfully will carry out chapter 7's promises. Can you imagine being Israel in this moment? They're going, this is a jacked up family. Where is the real king? Where's the promised one that's going to make all this mess right? That's going to bring order to our chaos? And today, as we sit in the midst of a broken community with broken families, it should cause us to long for the true David to come back. And when he comes back, as we sang of earlier, and he writes every wrong, and he's in the process of doing that right now through the risen Jesus, putting death into reverse and healing what is broken. You see, Jesus, the true son of David, has an answer for the guilt of David and the shame of Tamar. Both the guilt of David and the shame of Tamar. See, Jesus came to break this cycle of sin. He came to break the cycle of ungrace. Your father's sins don't have to be your sins because Jesus is alive. And the shame and the guilt that have been handed to you from someone else do not have to stay there because Jesus is alive. And you may be asking, just like Tamar was asking, where can I carry my shame? Where do I go with this? Because I feel like an island right now. And I love Jen Wilkins' answer to Tamar's question. She says, it's the cross. We can carry it to the cross. She said, the true David writes the wrongs we have done and the wrongs that have been done to us. The guilty lay down their guilt and the victims lay down their shame that should have never been laid on them. You see, Jesus came and he, and he paid for and he forgave the sins of David, the sins of Amnon, the sins of Absalom. But he also came to rise from the dead to offer a new way of life back to what God had originally called us to in the garden. Change is possible because Jesus is alive. Not just forgiveness, transformation. And for the Tamars, Jesus came to rescue and to free, 
from oppression, from, from shame. He's the one that sees your true worth. You are not alone. There's a beautiful promise in Isaiah 61 of this coming king and what he would do, the true son of David. Hear these words. If you're Tamar this morning, we need to hear and cling to these truths. To the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. For the Lord has anointed me, the Savior, the Redeemer, to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to comfort the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted this morning? To proclaim that captives will be released and prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor has come and with it the day of God's anger against their enemies. For all, to all who mourn in Israel or to all who mourn in Soldatna, Alaska, he will give a crown of beauty for ashes, a joyous blessing instead of mourning, festive praise instead of despair. In their righteousness, they will be like great oaks that the Lord has planted for his own glory. Father God, you're the only true example of what truly good fatherhood looks like. We thank you for the men in this room who have done a valiant effort in their attempts to father well. And I know personally many men in here, many women who have mothered well. We thank you for the parents who are following you. None of us are doing perfectly. And we know because of that, with our first parents, Adam and Eve, sin and brokenness and chaos have descended into this world, and we see it all over the place. Lord, I pray for the Amnons, the Absaloms in this room today, that there would be repentance, that they would not stay silent, that they would move forward and do whatever it is that you've called them to do, but also to know that there is forgiveness for them. There is healing and restoration available for them through repentance and the risen Jesus. We pray for those of us who know one who is in these situations, that we would be faithful to be brothers and sisters and not just be silent because that's easier and less awkward, but we would do what you've called us to do to take that courageous step that you're calling us to. And Father, Lord, I pray for the Tamars in this room, that they would know that they are fearfully and wonderfully made and that you value their soul. Your eye is on the sparrow that they are loved, that they are noticed, that they are seen, not as an object, but as a beautiful creation, as your daughters and sons, that they too would take that brave step forward to not be silent, but to know there is help, to know there is hope. Lord, we all want to step back for a moment. We're going to sing about how great you are and to remember that there's a God on the throne who's in charge of all this. And at times, Lord, it surely doesn't feel like it. And it feels like the brokenness and the darkness way outweighs anything that's good and light. That we would believe that you'd remind us this morning of the greatness of the true king who has the whole world in his hands. And the way that you conquered sin was through the death of your son as he absorbed Tamar's shame and guilt. And he absorbed Amnon's guilt. And through this risen Jesus, there is hope for a new creation that declares the greatness of our God, that worships him, serves him, and loves community the way you called us to. Father, our only hope is him. May we declare your greatness, bring our brokenness, and find healing. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.